First of all, I want to thank uh, Pastor Gabe for teaching last weekend. And um, I was up in the mountains, for those of you who don't know, I took a week off and I was up in the mountains uh, elk hunting, which was fantastic. But you'll also see me drink uh, some hot tea several times throughout the message because um, walking around in 10 degree weather up in the mountains in the cold in the middle of the night. Um, I think I came down with a little something, but we'll, we'll get through this. Um, special welcome to visitors. Thank you. We are so glad that you're here. It means a lot. I know it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of trust. It's putting yourself out there to come and visit a new church and see what they do and who they are and kind of risk seeing, you know, um, seeing what happens to you. I can tell you that we are no weirder than most other churches that you will find. We are weird, but no weirder than most. Um, so we got that going for us anyway. So um, after service, as Pastor Gabe said, we would love to connect with you. I know I see a lot of new faces here today. Um, so on that, we are teaching through the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know, especially if you're a visitor, you're like, good, some fluff to where I can, I can get in there and just take it easy and relax. But uh, we are teaching our way through that book. And the reason that God put it on my heart to teach our way through that book is because there's so much misunderstanding and misinformation and, frankly, just, just wrong teaching on what the book is about. And I try to use the full title. It's the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ because so many people think when they think, what do you think of revelation? Revelation is scary. It's fire and brimstone. It's judgment. It's, it's end times. It's a scary thing. And so many people just simply see it as, as scary, and they don't even want to talk about it. I've spoken to people who are like, I'm not even going to come back to your church until you're done with that because I don't want to hear about it. But that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. It is nothing more. It's the gospel message fulfilled. It's the gospel message that, that we need a Savior. See what's coming Our God is a sovereign God who has always known that these things are coming. Didn't catch him by surprise. He's not scrambling to figure out what to do as the enemy is is more and more impactful on our daily lives. He's always known, and he's always had a way. And so when we look at this prophecy, it's a gift. It's a gift from our God who says, look, it's under control. And you just need to do your part. And our part, in a nutshell, as we've talked about through this whole series, if we had to boil it down to one word, this entire book is just persevere. Just persevere. The more things come your way, the more you need to hang on. And our Lord has given us plenty to hang on to. So if you're here and you've missed any of these series, I recommend we're in week 16 right now. I know, we've been been cranking through it. We're nearing the end, but we're in week 16 now. So if you've missed any and you want to go back and check it, we podcast. So Google Play, iTunes, you can catch it on there. Or you can even just go to our website, again, discovercommunity.church, and listen to it straight through there um, so that you can go back and check all all the messages that you may have missed. But again, it's not a scary book about pain and suffering and all those things. Yes, they're in there. And you can't you can't change the fact that judgment is there. God's wrath is there. And that's, you can't teach the gospel, you can't teach the word of God without mentioning those things. But if we see him in context, we realize that it's a loving God who made a way for us. And if you're still in this place where you are fearing the judgment of God, 
it's a misunderstanding of his heart. So let's dig into it. This is the only book, and I say this every week, but this is the only book in the entire Bible, the entire Bible that explicitly says, chapter 1, it's the third verse right after the, the hellos, basically, that says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. So you're blessed if you read it. You're blessed if you hear it. But most of all, you have to heed it. The word heed means let it change your life. At the very least, let it change how you think. You can't just hear it in one ear, out the other ear. You have to pay attention to it. And this is why we are going to go through, we're going to read every single book, every single word in this book. You will hear it. And I hope by explaining it and by making it real, because there's so much imagery, so much um, that's just hard to understand. My hope is that I can make it clear as we go through so that you will be blessed by it. That's what I want more than anything. So this last week, as Pastor Gabe taught, we essentially learned, um, as we've kind of known throughout this book, that prophecy is given to us, especially this book, as kind of a signpost, if you will, kind of a, a, of a marker so that we can see familiar things along the way. Who here, and this is especially real to me because of traipsing around in the woods in the middle of the night, you know, for the last, the last week, who's ever been lost? Anybody ever been lost? Lost in the woods, lost while you're driving in an unfamiliar town. It's not a good feeling to be lost, And the more lost you are, the more things don't look familiar to you, the more uncomfortable it is, right? You have that moment like, oh, my gosh, I don't know where I'm going. What am I going to do? Excuse me. Then, then there's that moment where you're traipsing around and you see something that's familiar. You see a familiar building, a familiar exit. Maybe Maybe it's a silhouette on a skyline. Maybe it's just like last week. I see some tracks and I go, those are my tracks. So I just have to go this way and follow them. That moment when you see that familiar, what happens? Your heart leaps. Like, oh, okay, okay, it's good now. You may still have a long way to go. You may still have a lot of work to get to where you're going, but now you see something familiar and you're like, okay, it's going to be all right. That, I believe, is one reason why God gives us these prophecies so that in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of a storm, in the midst of where it seems like things are chaotic and out of control, we can look back and go, look at this. The things that he's telling us were coming are starting to arrive now. We're seeing these things. And not only that, but thousands of years ago, these prophecies were given to other groups of people that these things were coming, and they're coming to fruition now. And so not all of it is pleasant, but we have these familiar signposts that should give us comfort in our heart, that we're not alone to navigate our way through just to figure out how things are going on. God has given us a roadmap because he's always known how this was going to unfold. I love that. So last week where we left off, uh, Pastor Gabe talked about in chapter 15, the seven angels were given the seven bowls of wrath in preparation for the pouring out of this wrath. Now, this is the final pouring out, the bowls. Remember, we went through the scrolls and the seals and the trumpets. 
the bowls, or some, some translations use the word vile, uh, or maybe jar of wrath. But bowl of wrath, it, it's about to be poured out. And we get to see that happen in this chapter today. It is the final pouring out of God's wrath on rebellious people. So here we are, chapter 16. It's literally what I call the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end, especially of God's wrath. Now, before I read this entire chapter, which I'm going to do, it's important to realize that the Apostle John, who received this vision and wrote it down, is a vastly different person than the Apostle Luke was. Okay, Luke was very, he's my favorite because he's very, very chronological. He's more like a newspaper reporter. He's very, very important to, let me get my facts straight, let me put things in order, and it's very linear, and you can read it and go, okay, I see what's going on. John has no such issues with timelines and and flow, and in some cases, clarity. He's, he's given this vision, and he's writing it down, but you have to realize that there are times, like in chapter 14, two weeks ago, I talked about the reaping, okay? So the, the saints were taken up to heaven, and the grapes of the earth, the, the, those enemies of God, were also reaped, okay? So you read that, and it looks like, well, there shouldn't be anybody left on earth, But now we jump forward to this chapter, and we're seeing this marshalling of armies coming together for a final battle. So we have to realize this is the same group of people. There are some left. Some have been taken. Some are left. So don't let it confuse you that, wait, I thought the earth was empty at this point. That's not where we are. So let's go in. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to kind of look in, dissect it a little bit. So this is Revelation chapter 16. It's 21 verses. Now, I use the New American Standard Version. It's the one I like to study out of. If you have that, you can follow along. Your translation might read a little bit differently. But if you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. Just follow along. Listen to what I'm, uh, I'm speaking here. So, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and into the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. 
And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man had, not, had come upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Wow. Welcome, visitors, again. I don't know if that's what you thought you'd be hearing today, but this is what the Word of God says. Let's take a closer look, because that is a horrific scene. You look at what's going on, and it's terrible. And so many of the questions that get asked of Christians especially is, how could a loving God allow? How could a loving God do this? What we find out is a loving God has to do this, because he has thrown every lifeline possible out to his people. And the only people who are experiencing this now are those who have rejected his lifeline. It's not by accident. It's not somebody hasn't heard and so they don't know. It's not somebody who's confused and doesn't quite understand. These are people who have outright, with a rebellious nature, rejected the lifeline, which is Jesus Christ. And those people are experiencing this. So how could a loving God, well, how could you? How could you reject the gift? Revelation 16, verse 2. Let's put it up on screen. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So remember a couple chapters ago, people were, were forced to get the, the mark of the beast and to worship the image, but there were several who outright refused. I will not take the mark. I will not worship the beast. So these people who are receiving these malignant sores, you can picture in your mind what that is. Okay, These people, it's not, it's not just random. It's only those people who had received the mark of the beast, worshipped his image, who get this punishment. We see these images from Israel's exodus going all the way back to the book of Exodus repeated over and over again. And again, in terms of if you were Jewish, you would have been familiar with that. You would have seen and been taught time and time again about the exodus and the things that happened and the plagues that came upon Egypt. And these things that are now unfolding again would be familiar to you. God took you through it once as a nation. 
He'll take you through it again. Revelation 16, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And we see time and time again in the Bible where blood is, blood carries life. It's the lifeblood. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. Blood is a very good thing, typically, in the Bible. Here, blood brings death. Doesn't say it became like blood, which has a which has a connotation that it's carrying life in it. It's blood like that of a dead man. It's, you can't drink it. It's not nourishing. There's nothing left in it. It's completely fitting that those those who relished the idea of shedding blood of the saints, martyring those, beheading all those things that were going on, are now forced to drink blood in order to survive, in order to even to attempt to survive. Revelation 16.4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Mm, same thing. There is nothing left. Now think about this. You've, you've got, your body is covered with sores. There's nothing to wash the sores with. There's nothing to drink. Times are getting... Times are getting tougher every single day. Then Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who had the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So think about not only is there nothing to drink, not only are they, not you, covered in sores, but now the heat is turned up. The heat is turned up so much, we know that the coming of Christ has to be soon because you can't survive for long in these conditions. We know that it's coming soon. That last line, look at that very last line. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Even in the middle of all that, they did not repent. It was a choice that they made. Revelation 16, 10 and 11 Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Now in Egypt, if you remember back in the Exodus in Egypt, God darkened the entire sky. Here we see the sky just being darkened right over that spot. And that takes the, takes the uh, power away from the Antichrist. It illustrates how much more powerful the true God is than the Antichrist. Discredits his false power. And again, the last line, they did not repent. Revelation 16, 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, if you go back to the times, the Euphrates is a massive river, okay? Considered basically in those cultures the the giver of all life that was. About 1,800 miles long, give or take, is how long the Euphrates is. It's a giant river. Somewhere between 300 yards wide and 600, 700 yards wide, depending on where you are. I mean, it's a massive, massive river. And the Romans considered it such a great 
barrier to invade. It was basically impassable, at least in any kind of massive numbers. They considered it a barrier to invasion from the east, so much so that they really didn't even have to watch that flank because the Euphrates itself was, was going to be their, their ally there. But now we see that drying up, making way for invasion. Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14 Reads like this, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now remember, the Antichrist has set up his kingdom, set up his headquarters in Jerusalem. And he's been allowed to do this because he made a treaty with the Israelites to protect them. Obviously a false treaty, but now we see the nations of the world. This illustrates that even though there's a one world government at this time, there are still individual kingdoms, if you will, and they've had enough. They've seen the plagues, and they've seen all these terrible things raining down on them, and the Antichrist doesn't seem to be protecting them from this. So they begin to marshal together, and they are marching on Jerusalem. They're going to squash it and put an end to it. But of course, somewhere in that way, the Antichrist then flips on Israel and he betrays them and he goes against the treaty and he joins forces then with these armies that are coming in. And we see that happening. So here we are now, coming up on verse 15. In the middle of all this, in the middle of describing the coming battle and the judgments and the things that are happening, which is a prophetic vision given to the Apostle John, and he's describing what he's seeing. And in the midst of this, all of a sudden, a whisper from Jesus. This is the voice of Jesus Christ himself, who in verse 16 says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. 15, sorry. 16, chapter 16, verse 15. It's a warning against being complacent because it would be very, very easy to see these things unfolding, especially as you see the prophecy. And us today, I think it's more of a warning for us today, seeing these things and going, okay, there's still time. There's still time. There's still more things that have to unfold, and I haven't seen them coming yet. Jesus takes a pause for a moment and says, wait, I need you to be ready today. I need you to be ready every day. Because what happens with the thief? Does the thief say, I'm coming Tuesday at 4.30? A thief comes when he comes. And by nature, you're not going to know when he's coming. Sometimes you don't even know that he has come. But you're certainly not going to know. And what he's saying here is avoid the temptation to go through this prophecy and try and figure out when I'm coming. The point is, be ready now. Be ready now because the time is coming near. So this is where we are. So Revelation 16, verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megeddon. You know, in other places in the word, going all the way back to Old Testament, sometimes you see it called the Jezreel Valley. Sometimes it's the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Um, 
But it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a plain than a valley because they don't have 14ers there. Their mountains are more like hills, really. But let's show you. This is a modern picture. It's not the most high res, but this is what it looks like today. It's just a, just a plain. There's a little road that goes down the bottom, and there are people that live there. There are people that farm there. It's, it's just a place. But history records that this is one of the greatest battlefields that there ever was. All throughout history, battle after battle after battle was fought on this field. And it's, it's large. And we see this is where the final battle is going to take place. This is going back to chapter 14 when he talks about throwing those enemies of God into the wine press. This is the wine press. This is the place where the enemies of God get trampled. We'll see that coming very soon. Chapter 17 through 19 really go into detail, so stay tuned the next couple weeks. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But again, you talk about mileposts and about reminders and things. All the way back 800 years before Christ, which means almost 900 years before the apostle John was given this vision, the Old Testament prophet Joel received a very, very similar vision. I'm going to read this to you. It's a little bit long, but listen to the parallels to what's happening then. This is Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. It says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. That was 900 years prior to John receiving this vision. Again, think you're, you're a Jew, and you have known this scripture from Joel, the prophet. You have known that, but you didn't really have a context for it. And then you have this other prophet giving these words, John, these words that echo the very same thing. Now, if you are a descendant of those who were given this prophecy to begin with and you see these things unfold, terrible, yes. Unpleasant, yes. But comforting, knowing that God's in control. Yes. Amen is right. Amen is right. Okay. Here we are now, Revelation 16, 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out from the temple of the throne, saying, it is done. Now this announcement coming out from the temple itself, 
It may be the voice of God. We don't know exactly what this voice is. Scripture doesn't record exactly what that is. But we do know that in in God's mercy, he has stretched out this timeline. He has stretched it out as far as he could to give as many people as possible a chance to repent, a chance to make this choice. He has delayed as long as he could. But now, there's no more delay. He says, it is done. Lightning, thunder, terrible earthquake rock the entire planet. Scripture says the great city is torn apart. The cities and nations all crumble to the ground in these earthquakes. There's almost nothing left. Now, quick note, scholars disagree on what the great city is. Some say that it's Jerusalem. And some say that it's Babylon. Again, this figurative Babylon. Babylon as represented by Rome, I believe, is what they're talking about here. And I believe that because the next verse talks about Babylon receiving the full cup of God's wrath. Remember, Babylon at this point is not a place. It's an idea more. It's symbolic of those rebellious, unrepentant nations that are, that are essentially enemies of God. And they receive the full cup of God's wrath. Islands sink into the sea. Mountains shake and collapse. And then the last verse of this chapter, Revelation 16, 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. It's like the king of understatements there, right? 100-pound hailstones. That's a severe plague. We see this again. We, as terrible as that is, we see an echo of this going all the way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 9, 23 to 26. Let me read this, this account to you from Exodus. Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Again, the sons of Israel, the nation of Israel, witnessed this plague, witnessed God's wrath coming upon the Egyptians, but they were spared. They were set aside and they were spared from it. This would be, again, a comfort to those who knew this prophecy and who had known what had happened with God in Exodus. This would have been a comfort to them. He spared us before. He will spare us again. It's a familiar display of God's wrath. We see it time and time again. But again, another encouragement to hold on. See, every generation, you go all the way back to the beginning of time, all the way from the, from the Israelites in Exodus and in Egypt, you see them. They've all been able to identify with and see certain aspects of this prophecy unfolding. And we've seen it all the way through time. It was Egypt persecuting the nation of Israel. It was the Romans persecuting the Christians. It was Hitler persecuting the Jews. It was maybe today's media persecuting and mocking Christians today. I see that. 
Maybe it's the Antichrist martyring those who refuse to get the mark sometime in the future. Every generation will see these signposts pointing to the return of Christ and the judgment that will surely come on the wicked. So when we've got these clues, for thousands of years we've seen these little clues lining up. Why is it then that so many people live their lives like there will always be another day? There's always a tomorrow to repent. I know what I'm doing now is not right. I know I'm not living my life the way that Christ would like me to live it, the way I would like to live it, but there's still plenty of time. It's easy to say that, but that's not what the Word says. The Word says the time is soon and you will not know. And it seems to me sometimes like wishful thinking when we teach from the pulpit and we say, we try and illustrate the difference between heaven and hell between right and wrong, between blessing and cursing. We try to teach all those things, and we think that that alone ought to be enough to convince people to repent and live a Christ-like life. We think it ought to be. I think it's wishful thinking sometimes. It doesn't always work out like that. In fact, there's a theologian. His name is Charles Spurgeon. About 200 years ago, he said it like this. He said, judgment may pronounce a carnal repentance, a repentance that is of the flesh and after the manner of the sinful nature of men. In this repentance, the depravity of the heart remains the same in essence, though it takes another form in showing itself. Though the man changes, he is not savingly changed. He becomes another man, but not a new man. The same sin rules in him, but it's called by another name and wears another dress. The stone is carved into a more sightly shape, but it's not turned into flesh. The iron is cast into another image, but it's not transformed into gold. This carnal repentance is caused by fear. Does not every thief repent of robbery when he's convicted and sent to jail? Does not every murderer repent of his crime when he stands under the fatal tree? That word repentance, we talk about it a lot in here, and it's obviously key. Let's take a quick look real closely at that word repentance. Okay, repentance, if you're new here, every now and then I'll give a little Greek lesson. And I do that when I think that the Greek or the Hebrew meaning of the word that we commonly use lends a new meaning to what we're talking about or lends some clarity, let's say. In the Old Testament, we see the word repentance used over and over again, but in different forms. It's things like to turn away from, to confess, to renounce your ways, okay? It is, <coughs> excuse me, it's always, in essence, to turn away from, to turn your back to a behavior, but it's a response to the law and to fear, in the Old Testament, prior to receiving the Holy Spirit, it was to repent and to turn away was for fear of repercussions, for fear of the law, for fear of what would happen to you if you didn't. Since we are given the Holy Spirit through Jesus, it has a new meaning. It's the same word, repentance, but here's what it means. Repentance in the Greek, which is what the New Testament primarily is written in, is pronounced metanoeo. That's the Greek word. And the definition of that is to change the inner man after being with. In other words, 
inner change after being with Christ. That's transformation. That's an inner change. So no longer is it simply you're afraid of the law and you're responding to that. You're responding to Jesus. Amen. Repentance, in other words, is not a legal issue. It's an internal one. We see Jesus teaching time and time again, hey, I know you're following the letter of the law, but where's your heart? And he carries this theme through. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start getting ready. So why then, when we look at all this stuff raining down and all these reasons, if you needed a reason to repent and turn away, you're getting plenty of reasons at this time as things unfold. Why would you not then repent after seeing the massive and awesome power of God's wrath? Why would you not? Why would you still be on earth enduring all these things and not repent? Well, here's the reason. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot repent. Without the Holy Spirit and the renewed spirit inside you, you cannot repent. You can only fear. You can only fear. And sometimes our response to fear is, if I just run faster, I'll outrun it. If I just build a more secure fort, I can hide from it. If I just gather more people around me, we can all defend against it. That's what fear's response is. The response to Jesus is, I need to change for me. It's not a response out of fear. But the problem is the demon spirit of pride can blind us to the truth of Jesus' saving grace. How many times have you seen people just flatly refuse? If you've got little ones, you know exactly what this looks like. Don't do that. Mm. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. And, and yes, it hurt, but I'm not going to tell you that it hurt. This is what it looks like in a child. We do the same thing, church. We do the same thing. Here's what the demon spirit of pride looks like in your life. It looks like self-sufficiency. I can do it myself. I don't need help. I don't need somebody to guide me. I don't need the Holy Spirit to guide me through life. I can figure it out myself. It looks like a sense of entitlement. How many times, no, 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 don't raise hands and don't look at the person next to you, have you said the statement, I deserve better? It sounds like an innocuous statement, but if you've ever said and if you believe, I deserve better, that's pride in you. Because you know what we deserve? What we deserve, Jesus took for us. If we really got what we deserved, we would not like it, church. Thank God that we don't get what we deserve. It can look like a sense of rebellion, that whole you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do the opposite just because you're telling me. Paul said, why do I do the things I don't want to do? It's because that spirit rises up in you. It can look like idolatry, placing those things, placing our house and our car and our big screen and whatever we want, the stuff over our relationship with Jesus. Ultimately, it can just simply look like a life lacking in prayer because prayer is asking the Holy Spirit for guidance, asking for his life to guide you through yours. And if your life is lacking in prayer, it must be because we think we can do it ourselves. 
Now, the opposite of pride is humility. The opposite of pride is humility. In Luke chapter 14, verse 11, it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the question is, who is exalting you? Who is exalting you? Are you allowing the Lord to exalt you? In your humility, in your servant heart, in your desire for him and your acceptance of Jesus' saving grace, are you allowing him to exalt you? Or is there a part of your life that says, I'm gonna exalt myself because that's where pride gets in. My choice is to humble myself before the Lord and say, without you, I have nothing. Without you, in the face of all these things that are going to unfold and unravel sometime in the future, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe a decade from now, who knows when this is gonna happen? We don't know. But I wanna be ready today. So I wanna set aside and repent of all of those things that I've been operating in that are prideful. Because I've got them too. Just because I recognize it doesn't mean that I don't have it. I do have a spirit of pride. There are times, many times, when I'm writing a message and I get halfway through and I'm going, why am I struggling so much in this? Oh, I know. It's because you think you know what you're doing. I take a step back and I give it to God and let the spirit guide me. And when that happens, I can't get the notes down fast enough because he'll give us what we need. The minute you think you've got something, you're wrong. So I'm going to take this time during, during our response. Now, here's how it works. If you're, if you're a visitor here or it's been a while, at the crosses, both crosses, we have communion there. And we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers. And you can serve yourself or you can serve your family. Up front here, Gabe and I will be serving and we have wine. It's the same thing, the juice or the crackers. And we would be happy to serve you up there. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be anything like that. You simply have to call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And we are called to celebrate that and remember him every time we gather together. So we're going to do that right now. But before you get up out of your chair and start moving around and doing that, take a moment. Let the Holy Spirit convict you on what you need to set aside. Maybe something prideful you've been operating in that you need to repent of and leave it because church we need to be prepared there may not be a tomorrow we need to be ready and part of that is repenting of those things that we know are not right so I'm not going to sit here and look at you and say this is what's right and this is what's wrong and let you I'm going to let you seek the Holy Spirit and he will convict you and my guess is that for the vast majority of us he already has pinpointed something that you need to repent of and set aside so let's say that prayer of repentance. We can say that, and I'm gonna say that together corporately. Then after that, the worship team will play. You can begin moving around when you're ready. In the back of the room, we have our, our prayer team back there. If you need prayer, somebody to pray with you, whether it's this, for healing, or any other matter that you need prayer for, go back there and see them. They're gonna be lined up against the back. You can see them. But would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy and for the fact that you give us the words of this prophecy for comfort, not for fear, but for comfort, knowing that there is never anything that catches you unaware. There's never anything that gets you by surprise. Lord, you have always made a way. 
And so, Father, we repent of anything that we have done that's gotten in the way of that, that's made it difficult for us to hear your word or connect with you, and much more to honor you and to glorify you. So, Lord, we want to repent of those ways, and we do so now. We repent of those things. And we want to give you glory and honor. We want to be a reflection of who Jesus Christ is in us. So, Father, we repent of anything we have ever done or or we're still doing that does not reflect you. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And it's in your Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.
bring me.